You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Well, it turns out that we're not the only ones, and it's nice for a little misery-having company. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marsha Ryan Maresca, and this is episode 117, More Queries and Quandaries. My head always wants to merge our theme song with the theme song from The Guild. I don't know why. <laughs> they, they use similar chords or something, or at least Something's my brain thinks happening. they do. I'm not very good with music, so maybe they don't use any of the same notes or anything. But <laughs> are, are you talking about the old Felicia Day YouTube yes? show? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. I love that show. I certainly I, watched all of it. and <laughs> I feel that show deeply in my soul. <laughs> Felicia Day's memoir is a really good read. I found it very heartening in some very challenging times of my life. It's like, oh, she fucked up a lot, too. That's great. That makes me feel better. Everybody gets to fuck up as much as they need to. It's actually kind of a human universal, I think. No, not me, though. I don't get to. Yes, you do, Cass. No, I don't get to. No, you do, Cass. No. Cass, you, I want Cass, you to be kind to you, my friend. Uh, you do you know how many to... people? Do you know how many people have used that on me lately? Because <laughs> it's don't true. Have, you don't have to like it. Uh, uh, but okay, there's the key. There's yep. the key. Yeah. Besides, if anybody here you know doesn't get to fuck up, it's me. <laughs> it's gonna be another one of those episodes where we're just in a goofy mood the whole time. Like when yeah. we have a guest. So. When we have a guest, we at least pretend to be professional and on our best behavior. Just, and when it's the three of us, we're just, we're we're just, just nonsense goofiest. monkeys. We're at, we are. We're actually just a pile of ferrets in a trench coat. <laughs> I was going to say, like, in a sack. Just like. <laughs> Nothing as fancy no, as a trench coat. No, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a structure that, that we're aware of. <laughs> But it was abandoned a long time ago. There's ferrets. We can only occupy like sleeves. one sleeve at a time and <laughs> trying to tuck ourselves into our own pockets. It's, yeah, just... it's actually buttoned cockeyed just to make it one extra. Like, Do we at least get a hat? I hope we get a hat. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course we get a hat. It's operated by three ferrets. That's necessary for the disguise. I mean... Absolutely. Well, hi, listeners. <laughs> how much of this will get edited out and how much I, we kept in is going to no. be... I'm looking we, forward to finding out. We that's, trust you. That's going to be the magic of this particular Marshall episode. makes the call. <laughs> I forgot to check and see if we had any announcements, things that were important to bring up. I, I don't think... I mean, there's I no new announcements since last time, I don't think, no. unless... I don't think so. I mean, last time, Rowena, you did talk about there's a thing you can't yeah. talk about. I no. presume yeah. no. you can't those, still like, and won't be able calls, to. Publishing calls all time soon, so <laughs> I'm just But also up. soon at this point, I mean, this is when the episode is airing yeah, no. is December I, I have, when publishing goes to sleep for a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They take their nap nap. You they know, do. after their August nap nap, they need their December right. nap nap. They, they, they have their and summer nap, and then they have December and January nap. nap. They basically yeah. work about seven days. But Yeah, it's, 
uh, yeah, but yeah have we, we have nothing new to announce other than you know we all have beautiful amazing books out there and you should check them out yeah, so but besides that we're, we are, we're working a pace on the anthology we do have there that. is that we have, we have gotten we in stories from uh most of our contributors uh probably all of them by the time this comes out probably um i'm gonna be the holdout i'm gonna be like nope Still well, working. you and I are going to be neck and neck in that race, <laughs> I have a feeling. Um, and we've gotten in the submissions from from our wonderful listeners. And we're looking forward to, to sorting through those and, and figuring out what's going to be in the final. Yes, I think that we're like coming in on, as we record, we're looking at Thanksgiving coming up. So I think it's going to be like reading yeah. and editing and pie. So, That's a great weekend. Yes. That's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> Sounds pretty good, actually. So. What's everyone's um, favorite Thanksgiving pie? Chocolate pecan. That's what I'm making. Then I'm making chocolate bourbon pecan this year. Ooh. Oh my! Mm-hmm. Uh, if I so wasn't going just... to be in a different part of the world, I'd be heading over. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mine is a regular pecan with vanilla ice cream on top, warmed up with vanilla ice cream on top. But I, I gotta admit that my favorite pie for Thanksgiving, and maybe in general, is just a really good spicy pumpkin pie. That's my mom's favorite, I think. Like yeah. extra, extra cinnamon, extra ginger, mm. extra clove and mace. And yeah. See, everything about pumpkin spice I like, but the actual pumpkin part, eh. <laughs> just, I mean, it's just basically a squash in the pie shop. <laughs> I, I am I, I am not a fan of the squash as as a as a general food group. It is it and I are not friends. Yeah, I I like it in the pie shell and that's about it. One of the grossest things my mom used to make was um spaghetti squash. Have you ever had this? Oh and yes then, I have. And then she would like dump spaghetti sauce on it like it was like, some kind of like this makes it better. No. No, it didn't. It was. It was. All horrible. you did was ruin the sauce. Exactly. <laughs> it's bad. Oh, yeah. No, I'm. I mean, I'm... I, I fully understand all the attempts in this world to be like, what's something we can do that's like pasta but it's not pasta? Because if you eat pasta every day as much as you want to, you will die. <laughs> but... <laughs> oh, that explains so much. <laughs> So what can we do that's yeah. sort of like pasta, but isn't pasta? And somebody but, had that idea with spaghetti squash. No. And but if no. it's not pasta, just don't, just don't fucking just don't, bother. Like, no. I, I just eat something else. Like the spaghetti squash thing, too, is like, well, this thing's technically edible. What the fuck do we do with it? I don't know. Dump some ragu on it? Sure. I, I feel that. like... I mean, I feel like that's the case with all squash, but that's just me. <laughs> it was like... This is technically edible. We we probably shouldn't ignore it as a source of nutrition. But yeah, I like them as part of as as part of a complement of roasted root vegetables. I like a butternut squash soup. I do like a butternut squash soup with a nice like yeah. The spices nice thick. work it's too well. Thin, yeah, it's no good. But yeah. Now, in terms of not pasta pastas in in our household, we've been doing the kind that's made from chickpeas instead of from flour, oh. and that's actually mm. pretty good. Um. Like you, Noted. it's, it's one note. You wouldn't be like, this is a, this is a fake substitute to, to, to cover up the fact Why that, bother. that, yeah, yeah. well, my wife needs to be gluten-free most of the time. So therefore we need gluten-free options. So. Which is fair. Cause yeah. I, I, I feel like the big one a while ago was the zoodles thing. Oh yeah. The zucchini. That's, the zucchini. Yeah. You basically cut zucchini like it's, you know, like it's angel no. hair pasta. And, 
And, and the funny thing is, if you just like slice some zucchini real thin and toss it in with your pasta, it's actually kind of good. Right. But like as like a, you know, with with the pasta. As like a not base, pretending to be the pasta. If it pretends to be the pasta, it's just like, who are you faking? That's ridiculous. You're just not fooling anyone, Zucchini. No, Zucchini, anyone. get out. But, you, but you, you'd be a nice compliment to the pasta. We have gone off the pasta rails. That's fine. Completely. We're, but, I mean, you know, it's I the feel holiday like, season. We're going to make like we our listeners hungry. Pasta, pasta is a thing that in fantasy world building simply has not been given its due. It really like, has I agree. I mean, it's, I mean, everybody loves yeah. having all kinds of bread, but like pasta. I feel like, I feel like world build is almost a little bit afraid of noodles. It is, like, I think. Like if we have noodles, do we have to like follow the exact same noodle trajectory of, of noodles in our world and like right. origins and like, no, you don't. You could. The, the development noodles, of noodle tech. <laughs> noodles could be self-originating in whatever part of the world that it makes sense for you to have a, noodles. A, any place that had some tree. kind of flour and some kind of, and, and eggs, they could, yeah. they could have figured this out. It's yes. No, no, I'm picturing a noodle tree. Just. And what does it, does it produce noodles or are they really more like zoodles? That's a good question. It's a plant product. In my heaven, they would be that, actual yeah. noodles. Yeah. You just go up to the tree and just like clip off some noodles into a bowl. And yes, exactly. There you go. Yeah. Perfect. I mean, I do wonder how much of that is that like so many different kinds of pasta have names that are very specific, like place of origin names. Yes. Yes. And so... You can't, like, maybe you, I, I don't know all the places of origin ones, but like, can you have rigatoni in your world? Probably not. I don't know. That means I mean, a thing, I'm sure. Well, I mean, just the fact that most of those names are Italian and probably Italian for they something. something. If I spoke, sure. yeah, yeah. They mean something in Italian. And, you know, if you don't have Italy, you can't have, you know. I think lots of them are the shapes, though. The shape, so, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So you I mean, just it's call like, it like Italian for, like, tunnel or something, like, you know. Right, <laughs> just call it, like... Or Little Fist. I think one of them is Little Fist, but I forget which one. We we aren't necessarily advocating naming a dish <laughs> Little Fist in your world, ladies and gentlemen. Just... I'm pretty sure I didn't make that up, but... <laughs> you probably didn't. I'm sure that's accurate. But, I mean, interesting naming convention, just, you know... And a valid world building topic really of, of, of contemplation. Yes. Yeah. yeah. How do you name things? How do you name foods in general is, is something that... You you know, know. Like if you think about it, like a lot of foods do have goofy names. Yeah. Like yeah, if like you can like places or people back, or... Or just like weird. My favorite that I discovered when we were in Germany is Maltaschen. It's t- like it, so it ends up bas- basically meaning like mouth pocket. <laughs> but it's <laughs> but it's named after this monastery that's Mall Braun and then it was like Mall Toshin in any way. So it's like this cute little it's basically it's ravioli, but it's a different like spice like profile than Italian ravioli is. And it's meat. I mean, I feel like yeah. you could like do your deep constructed language work and then make like your food names just be things like mouth pocket or tiny fist, but in your constructed yeah. language. But would that yeah. translate to your reader? Would your reader understand that like Right. And that's... and the fact that like in worlds your food is like I don't know paper wad or whatever it is <laughs> that you're eating like 
you'd have to have you know like a fish out of water character having it explained to them right like right like someone who'd studied the language and was like wait why do you call this food little fist and and person making little food is like huh i never really thought about that (laughs) (laughs) i guess we do don't we i guess we do it's also things like how do you how do you describe noodles without using the word noodle See, it's kind of like if you cut zucchini up into little <laughs> tiny strips. <laughs> but it's not made of sadness. But, I mean, that is a world-building challenge I've often, like, found. But, like, how do I describe a thing that, like, the name of the thing describes it? And, like, you know, yes. and yet yeah. it feels wrong to, to use that name necessarily or... Or you have a character who shouldn't even know that it's that. Like, if you have your idiot character who just came into town and doesn't know what noodles are, how do you, how do you describe them? You know, within that context. It's a bowl of tiny wet snakes. <laughs> <laughs> I had that problem with tattoo, in the oven cycle because tattoo is a very I think it's somewhere Polynesian. I can't remember exactly what the derivation is. Um, and I just felt like that was just that was too alien a word to use. Interesting. And and so it I just had to like work around it, like the markings inked into their skin. <laughs> it's not elegant, but it gets the point across. It it is fascinating which words we feel seem verboten within the within the context of, of world our world buildings and which ones are like, nah, that's fine. It's a marathon. Yeah, it's oh, I've, it's a yeah, I know. I've said it. Yeah, I've said it before with the Oven Cycle. Like, despite the fact that I am writing it in English, a largely but not entirely Germanic der- derived language, words that were too Germanic, like really obviously Germanic, at least to me in my head, I didn't want to use. So, like, I don't use the word ghost for for the the demonic spirits that are floating around. Like, I couldn't use that word because it just felt wrong. It was like, no, that's that's too German. <laughs> And there's an element of like, you know, the vibes and the aesthetic are built by the words we choose. So that's kind of valid, you know, I mean. And I know some authors just let it go. Just and that's a perfectly valid choice. And I bet they have easier writing lives. because <laughs> They're not constantly torturing themselves with like, they're, what is the etymology of this? When did this word exist? Can I use this? They're happier people, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> But we're masochists, so right. we do this so, to ourselves. Exactly. We do this to ourselves, and we think about these questions. And Speaking of questions, <laughs> only I, took us 16 minutes to get around <laughs> to the topic of the episode. And there, I really just had to like throw out a softball to get us there. <laughs> Probably less than 16 once you edit it, but still. Still. So we have questions. We have we haven't done a listener question episode in a oh, while because wow. I feel like we did a couple close together last year between um, Armadillo Con and yeah, we did both our live shows we did World as Con. like as as live questions of whoever you know was in the room and asked us a question. Yeah, and which was so fun. That which was. was so fun, and hopefully we'll get to do things like that again someday, someday. Like someday. maybe next August in Scotland. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Could be. But yeah, we haven't we haven't had an, uh, a formal please send us your questions and we'll do our best to answer them until right now because people right sent now. us some questions. Hooray. They sure did. Well, should we just do that thing where somebody picks a question and 
Yeah, and then we go for it. Yeah, Marshall, do you want to pick a question? Uh, I will pick a question. Um, This one's a fun one. From Leopold von Lichtenstein, which... A-plus name, no notes. (laughs) That's how they signed the email, so that's what I put. (laughs) A-plus. I will call people by whatever name they want to be called by. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) My question is, how is history from an advanced society forgotten? Uh, a load-bearing element of the setting that I am writing is that the history of the lost civilization is forgotten by contemporary society. For example, the science that created flying islands. I mean, this is a fun question. I I feel like the easy answer is um, if the more isolated a you know lost civilization is, like whatever. I mean, if it's relatively, it feels like it needs to be relatively isolated to become lost in the first place and the more isolated it is the more easily however they did whatever they did can be forgotten especially if they were making a concerted effort to keep that information hidden from the rest of the world or if it was being suppressed by an outside force or something like that the um the rest of the the email that we got sort of went into some more detail about this questioner's um, particular situation they're working with, but it sort of brings in two different things, which is how do you forget technological advances and how do you forget language? And I feel like those are interrelated, but not exactly the same consideration because language tends to evolve and it might evolve to a point where you can no longer understand what came before without like study. But that is a that's a long process. You, you can if you do study, you can find you know the traces and things like that. Um, I think about the <laughs> I think about the Irish monks who learned classical Latin um, very early in in the medieval period, and then some of them traveled back to Europe to to study to learn to go see the Pope, whatever you know, as monks do. I think I guess, um, and they got to like Italy. And the people there, the people in Italy, thought they were still speaking Latin. They were no longer speaking Latin. They were speaking very early Italian. And it was just enough different that, that the monks were like, wait, no, this isn't what we learned from our books. This is not, <laughs> this is not, what, and the, the Italians are like, no, of course we're speaking Latin. We've always spoken Latin. <laughs> and like that happened all across the continent. And I find that super fascinating that you might still think you're speaking the same language as people hundreds of years ago but it could be totally different yeah i think too that the uh, this particular query kind of gets into like how how destructive and like how much wiping out you know can, do you have to have before of a society or civilization or even like a worldwide kind of like you know disaster um, to make it feasible or believable that a lot of stuff gets lost. And I think that that's a good way to think about it, but it may not be the only element that you're thinking about. Cause you might be thinking about ideas of, of suppression, of isolation. Um, why would people not be attempting to archive and remember this information is probably a good question to be asking too. Like if you have a society where their own hubris causes great destruction, they might choose to be like, we're going to forget how we did that because it was a bad idea. 
That knowledge is now forbidden. We're, we're just not going to teach that anymore. No, we're going to um, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. All knowledge of how to split an atom out of, right? like, out of ourselves. So, so you might have, you know, not just a naturally occurring forgetting, but, you know, how do people choose to create a narrative of their past? And that narrative could intentionally undermine some things and get rid of some things, you know, from the collective memory. It's like um, M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, which is a flawed movie in many ways, but it's an interesting premise that like the older generation moves to this place and decides to make like it's the 1800s and their kids don't know anything different. Anyone born into that world does not know about the modern world. Um, Sorry if I just spoiled that for anybody who yeah, hasn't seen spo- it, but it's spoiler it's a, alert. Whatever, it's an old enough movie. Like whatever. Um, the statute of limitations is up. Yeah, um, and it's I old enough it's, that if you cared, you would have found you it. You would have seen it. Yeah, and I will say, in some ways, go ahead and have it spoiled for you. Yeah. It's flawed, but it's it's beautiful. It's a beautifully it it's done. done. It's, it's in some ways, it's yes. a better movie to watch. It's better to watch knowing. Yes. This. Yes. The yeah. twist is is the twist isn't why you watch it. It's it's the, yeah. The, the visuals and the thematics of it are really kind of kind of lovely but but so yeah that's why i also think like when it comes to forgetting technology there has to be some removal of generations involved i think because if some cataclysm happened right now and all cell phone and satellite technology stopped working we would still know what cell phones are and tvs are but would we need would we would we even consider passing that knowledge down if it was useless now if it was something that you know couldn't be and maybe we tell our kids about the old days when when you could scroll endlessly um (laughs) it's a dark time but would they then tell would they then pass that story to their kids and and how might it get yeah the the telephone game there how might it get the telephone game about telephones yeah but how would it get changed in the storytelling and would they become, you know, mystical, magical objects rather than technological objects? And it's, it's really fun to think about that. Like how many generations yeah. would it take for this idea to either disappear entirely to go from memory into, to legend to, to myth, legend into, yeah, myth. into myth and things that, that Thank should you, have been forgotten. But I think also just to turn the idea to it, is it even practical to hold on to this knowledge? If, you know, the cell phones are never going to work again. Like this is just, this is never going, it's not coming back. This, the satellites have been knocked out of the sky. There's a cataclysm so extreme that there's no hope of my iPhone working again. I'm probably busy thinking about other things and gathering different kinds of knowledge and passing on different kinds of knowledge that those particular you know, elements, even if I had worked in the cell phone industry, even if I had been an a app designer, it would have been like, well, <laughs> this is this is now not helpful. And yeah. I am now much. We've more had a cataclysm about... that's killed off, you know, 99.99% of, of the world. Maybe I don't need to worry about getting the Internet up and running first. <laughs> right. Right. No, like your, your needs in that kind of like apocalyptic situation become much more basic. Like how do we feed ourselves? How do we clothe ourselves? How do we keep ourselves clean? How do we not die when we get right. a, a scratch? Like, and yeah. so I, yeah, I think it's, yeah. So thinking about, you know, you, you, these people are not pouring knowledge out into a vacuum. They're 
you know, they're filling the knowledge void with things that are useful and valuable and creating a narrative that they want to move forward with and all kinds of stuff. So think about that probably answers a lot of questions. And then also, even if you have the information, do you necessarily know what the information means? I mean, I'm thinking of Canticle of Leibowitz, where like they have all these like electric electronics diagrams that they don't really understand, but they Mm -hmm. still like copy them like they're holy texts because clearly this was important to our ancestors. Well, and yeah, like things like that would be like, what did the writer of that text assume you knew? Like they probably assume you know about basic circuitry, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not going to explain that level of knowledge. And therefore, if you don't know basic circuitry, it's gibberish. I you was know, also thinking... As it just think, uh, that with the two, like the fact too that most people don't know how any of this stuff works. I don't know how my oh cell God, phone works. I don't know how a car works. So it's like I am not the person to preserve that information. And you're going to have a selection effect of who's around to preserve information. And if you don't have the right people, that information is getting, you know, kind of kind of borked. Think about the things, you know, in our own world, in our history, the people are like, how exactly did they make the pyramids? How did they make Stonehenge? Like. <laughs> How do they they build those giant heads on Easter Island? Like each of those things is like nobody wrote it down. So they're but like <laughs> clearly there was like ideas. advanced engineering at play, and yeah. that whether or not it was written down in a way that didn't last or not, who knows? But they tested the Easter Island stuff. Like it has to do with ropes and like yeah. rocking the big stone back and forward so it kind of right. walks. I saw a video. It was really cool. <laughs> I, 15 people crushed in the making of this video <laughs> but there's also the factor of like if a society had a thing that they were explicitly trying to keep secret and mm. then whoops everyone who knew how to do this died died yeah exactly <laughs> well i think lots of crafts would be like that like and lots of you know specialized industries if the people who know how to do the thing don't survive whether it's part of the cataclysm or just die out naturally and haven't had the chance to train somebody then that's how knowledge gets lost. And we see things like that when it comes to, like, Roman baths across Europe. Some of them stayed in operation for hundreds of years because someone was there to pass down the knowledge of how to keep this hypocost working. But in other places, they became decrepit really fast because there wasn't somebody to do that. And suddenly it's like, well, this is a big marble pit. Don't know what else to do with it. We're going to rob it for its stones. I mean, we have that We have that today. Like, there's that... Sea silk... Is like a thing, like, you know, there's like six old ladies in Italy who still know how to make sea silk. Yeah. And, and they're not teaching it to anybody. <laughs> but there's that guy in, in Britain who's like begging anyone to come be his apprentice to learn how to thatch roofs. Yeah, yeah. And like, it, which is a pretty extreme example. But I remember when we had our piano tuned, my husband showed like the slightest modicum of interest. And our piano tuner was like, do you want to apprentice under me? Do you want to learn? I, I need to find someone. Like, there are these these trades and skills even, you know, that we kind of take for granted as, well, I'm sure there's someone who knows how to do that, but it's like, if you don't like, find someone to it, teach, there's it. not going to be someone to know how to do that. So, yeah, I think there's there's different ways that advanced technology can be lost, just depending on exactly what the factors are. And it might be lost faster in some places than others, because if society breaks down completely, if there is a cataclysm, travel's going to get harder. And people are going to not be exchanging information as certainly as rapidly as we do now. So 
you know, some little island might preserve all those skills, but if they can't get to other people, then those other people might lose those skills. So it can happen at different different rates of decay, I guess, <laughs> you know, like radioactivity. And end of day, I think part of this question was, is it feasible to write a world in which this happens? And I, I think, yeah, if you yeah, write, quite. if you write <laughs> it. it has happened. Believably, yeah. yes, you can. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would absolutely look to the, me, me, I would look to the devolution of the Roman Empire, which was not as complete. It wasn't like, oh, Empire fell, shut off all the lights, shut everything down. It happened over time. But you do see where technology was lost and where it managed to be kept and saved. And then re- or rediscovered and reinvented much later. Especially any kind of advanced technology where most of the civilization takes it for granted. I mean, the extreme example is the movie Idiocracy, where everything is so, like, computerized and automated. Nobody knows how to, like, operate things. Like, the society just sort of puts them in bumper cars and lets lets them, you know, just exist within it and not know how anything actually runs, because it's all automated. I mean, same thing with with WALL-E. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Chuck Wendig's Wayward, which is the sequel to his Wanderers, Ooh. does a really interesting um, job with this because it's only like five years after a major cataclysm and, and apocalyptic scenario where you know, 98% of the population or something dies. So people haven't forgotten, but you definitely see how their priorities change and you definitely see how important it is to find people who have certain skills and, and bring them together in a community but even then, there are some things that just aren't feasible without the right access to supplies, without the right access to, you know, the, the chain that brings things in, without the right access to chemicals and the ability to mix the things you need together. There's a character, this is a spoiler, and it only came out last year, so it, it's a spoiler, but I won't say who. There's a character who loses an arm to a fairly minor laceration because it gets infected and they don't have anything that they can sufficiently they don't have a pharmacist yeah they don't they, they're they're, go, they're looking everywhere they raid a veterinary um office at one point to try to find something some kind of antibiotic that could help them but most places have already been you know raided years ago and of course nothing new is being made because factories aren't, aren't in operation so it's just it's really that's a really good exploration of how fast some things can degenerate not forgotten because it's only been a few years but your priorities shift, you lose access to the supply chain, and it may as well be forgotten because it's not doing you any good now. Even if you have people who know how to, like, build a car, who knows how to, like, how to extract oil from the ground and then <laughs> process it into gasoline. Yeah. Yeah. Cass, do you, do you have another question that you want to hit? Okay, I like this one. Um, this one's from Alexander, and the question is, how do you research a subject that you personally don't enjoy but you know it's important for the world building. So if it's something that doesn't, you know, super interest you, not an area of specialty, not something you really feel like learning that much about, but you feel like you have to learn something about it, what what do? What do you do? The big question is, you know, if you're trying to do just the most thorough world building possible and therefore, like, like well i guess i do need a degree in architecture to be able to to understand how each different culture's buildings look but 
it's going to be whatever story you're writing and what you need for, you know, which almost feels antithetical to our, you know, core purpose of this podcast. But like, if you don't need to know too much about fashion to necessarily tell the story you want to tell, then don't, If especially if that does not interest you. Like, you should, you know, dive into the sex subjects of world building that spark joy. And if, if you know, architecture or fashion or music just makes you want to cry, then don't do it. <laughs> I feel like, you know, a lot of what you have to do is driven by what you're choosing to write a story about. And there's an element of, like, don't choose to write about things you don't like, which sounds like the stupidest, most elementary advice. But I, I feel like we had at some point have probably all not followed that advice and have incorporated something that we're like, oh, I didn't actually I don't like this. I don't I felt like I had to, but I don't like it. And I think sometimes taking a hard look at what you think you have to have and then realizing I don't like writing it. My reader probably won't like reading it if I don't like writing it. And maybe it doesn't have to be here is actually fair. And it's not always fair. And sometimes you do have to write things that you don't love. But, you know. There's always got to be a little bit of economics, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thoroughly resent having to write about food because I'm not a good cook and it bores me. But, you know, notwithstanding the discussion about pasta and squash we had earlier. So I'm going to answer the actual question, which is, how do you research it? So maybe you do want to include this. It's something that you feel is important to illustrate something about your world or about differences between cultures. You want to have it there. How do you research it if you're not already into it? And my best advice is to find somebody out there in the world who loves it, who just wants to swim in it, who is so passionate about it. Because generally, I think that passion makes for a good teacher. Look for podcasts, look for YouTube videos about people who are so into the thing because their enthusiasm will be contagious. It works in books, too. I mean, half the reason that any of the battle scenes in the Oven Cycle are any good whatsoever is because of um, Philip Matizek and his books on, like, legionaries, which are hilarious. They are so funny to read. But they include really good information about like battle techniques and battle formations and things that I'm like, why do I have to know this? Because you decided to set half of your book in a war zone with Roman legions. Because That's why. That's why you need to know this, Cass. You did that to yourself. That was a choice you made. <laughs> a choice I made. <laughs> but his books are so engagingly written and they're funny that it gave me, you know, it's not deep graduate level knowledge that I have, but it gave me enough knowledge to, to get the shorthand, at least, that I could use in the books and because he was funny and writing in a really engaging way, I didn't hate learning it. So find those people. Find the people who love the thing you're, that you need to know about. Listen to them. Read their stuff. It will make the task of research easier. I was going to say, there, there is probably, for whatever subject, there is a book out there where somebody has done the research and then digested it into a book that's fun to read and therefore has made it made your job easier by like um if for example you wanted to write a very realistic like science fiction going into space kind of book akin to say something like mary robinette cole's lady astronaut or the expanse or something like that um mary roach's packing for mars 
is a delightful thing to read because she just takes the like, here are all the things that NASA had to really think about in terms of how would we get a person to Mars and boils that down to a fun, practical thing of like, it's like, oh, wait, it turns out that, you know, your body signals of telling you you need to pee are gravity dependent. Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> and if you don't realize that, then you're going to be in trouble until... Oh, no. <laughs> and, and we think, learned this the hard way. <laughs> and I think part of the key is, like, looking for tongue-in-cheek titles like that. Because, like, Legionary is like a soldier's guide to surviving the the these wars. And it's like, if, if the title's tongue-in-cheek, if the title is having some fun... That's a decent sign that the book is going to be having some fun, too. Yeah. Which means you'll have fun reading it, hopefully. Yeah. Like, Packing would, for Mars. Yeah, that's a great title. I love that. Love it. I would say I'll add the, like, stick-in-the-mud stickler um, addendum to this, which is if you're looking if you're looking beyond traditionally published books, which are going to have some decent oversight, um, also have some pretty good crap radar handy. <laughs> um, because that is valid. one thing yes. that you will find as many people who are very passionate on the YouTubes or the Instagrams or wherever, you know, places people go and be passionate are not always super well informed. And, and I kind of say this from the little, don't necessarily the, like, do their due diligence, you know, his, you know, <laughs> corner of like the historical costuming and clothing world that a lot of people who will spout out for a very long time actually don't quite know what they're talking about. And, you know, when it's a hobbyist thing, that is okay, and I'm not judging, but, um, you know, kind of have your basic information literary skill, skills kind of, like, you know, engaged where you're looking for their sources. You want to know, look for the citations. Ask people to bring their receipts. Don't actually ask them. They get pissed. You can ask me how I know. Um, <laughs> but... You know, it. you want to find whatever sources that, that you use that people are able to link out or cite in some way to let you know where they're getting the information that they're getting. And then sometimes actually, no matter, you know, if you're if you're a masochist and a nerd, sometimes just following a rabbit trail can be really fun, actually. So you find some that kind of, you know, maybe it's a thing you're not super interested in, but you find some passionate person who's just like going on and you're like okay actually this is kind of interesting and they give you their source then you go and you find that source and then you find the source that that links from that and then it turns into kind of a game and it's kind of fun and you've wasted many hours on some tiny detail that you wish you hadn't included in your book to begin with so that is extremely valid yeah my i i amend my previous statement find someone who's passionate (laughs) that also has expertise in the subject um I know this from the Shakespeare world. Like some people who are Shakespeare scholars are dry as a bone and not that much fun to listen to. But some people who are Shakespeare scholars are like me, um, and a joy to listen to. Goddamn delight! An absolute delight. I mean, and that's that's what you want. You want to find the person who has the blend of expertise and delivery. Yes. To make and, it accessible. And and they will and. They, they will show you their receipts if they know they what will. they're talking about. Yeah. If someone is not showing you their receipts. They probably don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, don't get your history from TikTok, please. please. Most of it is so bad. Most of it's so, so bad. Bad news. Bad news. Bad news bears. And, you know, one thing I would add, too, is that, you know, hearing, reading, listening is all really good. But depending on what you're doing, if it's hands-on in any way, there may very well be some weirdo hobbyist who is totally happy to show you how 19th century woodworking 
works or introduce you to their sheep or whatever it is that you, you know, you want to know more about if there's, there's probably some, some club hobbyists, whatever, anything agriculture, your extension offices um, can probably help you out. Anything crafting or, you know, food ways related there's probably a club ask your local library they really know about a lot of these things look for living history museums i mean even and this also has an asterisk next to it but even renaissance fairs which often are not terribly historical but there are some people there with real knowledge there's somebody who goes around a lot of the ones on the east coast showing how printing worked like they've got a little miniature press that they take around and you can actually use it and see like oh man that takes a lot of effort to to push that down and it's so cool and that's a real thing that's not fake history like that's that's somebody whose enjoyment just comes from taking this mini press around to rent fairs and hoping people come talk to them which i find (laughs) just so delightful so things like that like look look for places where you can go talk to people and and maybe try it yourself and 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 give it a go because that's going to give you yeah, just like deeper understanding of what your characters would actually be doing with the thing that they're using. I also enjoy Alexander's bonus question. Why does no one tell you there's so much math in world building? To avoid scaring you. Yeah. <laughs> also, I feel like I've told you. I we do. Like we I say it a lot. Like I've complained a lot. <laughs> but yes, yes. We don't lie to you, listeners. We, we won't. We won't. We, we give won't. you the whole truth. We, we tell you the answer when people's like, when am I ever going to use trigonometry? And like, actually. <laughs> actually. Unfortunately. <laughs> How did that fucking building stay up? How did that cannon know where to aim? Yeah. <laughs> I so resent the amount of stupid, math. Stupid <laughs> math. 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 <laughs> math. All right. Rowena, <laughs> do you want to pick a question? Sure. So Stacy writes, and this is more of a writing question, but I think we can answer it um, with a lot of world building insight. Um, I generally write in third person, but I've toyed with switching to a first person POV a few times. However, I can't seem to get the hang of it. Any tips or recommendations for making that switch? And I think it's so interesting because POV is so tied to world building and world, I think. So... For me, it, you know, the, the question there is why exactly are you wanting to write in first person as opposed to third person? Mm-hmm. You know, is it that you feel that the story you're trying to tell, that is truly the best way to do it? Or is it for some other reason, like you feel like it'll sell better in first person, which may be true. I don't know. But, <laughs> but... Like, I think that's... We can neither confirm nor deny the marketability (laughs) of any particular choice. I mean, and the answer of, like, you know, because I think it'll sell better is a valid answer. Or the answer of, you know, because I want to just, you know, stretch my wings and try something different is a valid answer. I don't want to invalidate what you want to do by saying, like, why the heck do you want to do that? But ask yourself, interrogate why it is you want to switch to, to first person for, for a project instead of writing in third person or write it in second person. Cause why not? Because you know, some people have gotten away with that somehow. And I, you know, it boggles my mind, but it, yeah. some people have made it work for whatever reason. 
And I think if you know why you want to do it, that can start to guide your ability to make the switch for it too, right? If it's just that this is a voice that you really feel like is going to make this particular story work better, then then you, you kind of know that that motivation is there. And there's a reason that you think that probably. I feel like everything I've written like has told me at some point what POV I need it to be. Like this is going to work better in first person, this is going to work better in third person, present versus past, you know, all that kind of thing. It kind of, the story has kind of pushed me in one direction or the other. Um, but I do think it's interesting from a world building, building perspective that when you push that switch to first person, like we're all always in some ways seeing the world through a character's eyes, but now you're literally seeing it through their eyes and filtering it through that voice. And I think that that can do really interesting things with the world building. It might be an interesting practice to do if you're kind of struggling with POV in general, just to try writing in first person, just to see how, what changes you notice in what your character would notice and what would be relayed to the reader if it's in first person instead of third person. Um, because depending on how close you are as a third person, like there's mm -hmm. a distance that, that you can kind of, you know, create to convey certain things to a reader um, that you can't convey in the same way with first person and vice versa. Yeah. I feel like first person offers you a lot more opportunities to withhold information in, in ways that can be really interesting or to present that character's normal, right? Like what they think is normal and what's unusual to them in a more immediate kind of way. I also generally write in third person. I can only ever maintain first person for really short things. I can't hold it up for a whole novel. I would write in third omniscient if it was still in fashion, but it's not. I got that beaten out of me. But I write in third rotating because I still want to give lots of different points of view. And I feel like I've very rarely seen first person novels that like switch between first persons. Just I, I have. I mean, they do exist. Yeah, I mean, they do exist. I'm they not exist. saying they don't exist, but I think that's le much less common. Andrea Stewart's Bone Shard Daughter does that. Mm, yeah. Mm. But I do feel like it is less common and maybe less common than it used to be. Don't quote me on that, but I feel like. Maybe maybe a little bit less common than it used to be to do multiple first-person POVs. I don't know. Well, in a way, like an epistolatory novel is multiple first-person yeah. points of view. Yeah. But it definitely does change. I feel like it changes like the size of the window that you get on your world in any given moment. And it's a tighter focus in first-person than in third. And maybe that's just my perception. I, I don't really know. But tips or recommendations and try it play with it yeah that's yeah. that's mostly what i got is is play with it <laughs> read things that are in the style you want to try to to write in um if you want to write multiple first person povs then go find some books that are multiple first person povs and study what they've done look at their craft look at how they use different sentence structures to differentiate different characters you know different tones different vocabularies dig in to people who have done it and see what lessons you can pull out of that for yourself. I think also um, attempt talking to yourself as your character might help <laughs> with getting into first person, like get into their head, imagine them narrating their world and kind of like, you might feel like a little bit bonkers, but do try talking to yourself as your character. If you're writing novels and not feeling kind of bonkers, you know, 
then what are you even doing? Yeah, I don't know. yeah, it's true. I would say, or try acting as your character. Like, if you had to play this character on a stage, what would that be like? What would that feel like? What words would come out of your face? Just play with that. Walk, walk around in your house talking as though you are that character. Once again, you'll feel silly, but eh, I've done weirder things, so... <laughs> I think, too, if you are already writing in such a close third that there is very little filter between what the character is feeling and reacting and thinking and the reader, it may be that you're overthinking it and you're really writing something so close to first already that it just feels like I have to make this major shift, but you're not making a major shift. Often when I write third, I I insert some distance because I, I think that's fun to have a little bit of distance. But if you're already writing a very immediate, very close third, it, there's not a huge amount of difference between a very close, limited, immediate third and a first. Marshall, you got another question you want to pick up for us? Here's one that's throwing a little bit of a gauntlet at us. Uh, I have noticed, <laughs> this is from Keegan. I have noticed sometimes on the podcast, it seems a guest would contradict something said either by a host or a guest in a previous episode. Do you ever find yourself having to bite your tongues to prevent an argument or debate? Or do you or do any contradictions instead reflect a change in the views of the hosts? And they give a recent example uh, a guest talking about having to earn not having historical fantasy contain racism were earlier said. Earlier in the series, hosts seem to agree you can just choose not to have racism. And I think in that specific example, we were talking about two different things. Yeah, I think so. We were talking about, the, you know, in a historical fantasy, there is something very different from in a secondary world fantasy where you just simply, mm-hmm. you know, don't build in that same kind of history within the world where where racism exists as opposed to if you're setting something explicitly in like georgia in 1870 (laughs) just you know you're gonna have to really explain (laughs) how how your alternate reality is different from actual reality because it's so deeply baked in right that you are changing a lot which doesn't mean you can't change a lot but you're gonna have to show your work you know you're gonna have to to do that But yeah, speaking to the broader question, I don't ever find myself biting my tongue. I tend to think that our guests, especially, like, no one's necessarily right or wrong. They're all coming from their own perspectives and their own experiences. And I'm certainly not going to contradict them on what their own experiences are. And there's value in all of it, right? Like, there's different approaches to lots of different topics that people don't agree on, that people that that work better for some people than others. And that's fine. Broadly you know, change of view in the hosts, I have learned a lot doing this show over the last few years. I oh, learned yeah. from all of our guests something. So it's not necessarily like a deep change of view, but often it's illuminating something for me that I hadn't really thought about enough before. So that's certainly possible in, in some of our, you know, things that, that come along. But especially when it comes to the guests, I they get to speak their truth, you know? <laughs> that's that's what it is. That's Each writer comes from a different a different place and we got to honor that and also i feel like we've had guests where we don't nec- i mean I, uh, here's an example from when we had uh, james sutter just just a few weeks back and he said something about it's like you don't need to know about the continent you know that you're not going to go to and i'm just like 
I disagree. And but I'm also <laughs> not going to start a fight with James <laughs> on that particular yeah. subject because, you know, he has his point of view and I have mine. And neither of you is right or wrong, right? Like because you can each write a perfect book. Well, no, book I'm book I'm objectively correct, but <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about, Cass? <laughs> I'm kidding, mostly. <laughs> but but so I'm not going to start a fight over that particular subject because, like, what does what would that actually gain us on the show? I think too there, there is such a wide range of nuance and different circumstances and different situations and different goals in writing that you know, yeah, everybody can be right. Not everybody. There's I'm sure people out there who are just wrong. no. There's plenty of people. But who are, everybody who are that we had on. <laughs> We don't invite right. those people onto the show. Exactly. There's a there's a, a, a stringent vetting process before we have guests on. And if you seem like you're objectively wrong, we just don't invite you. All the guests, they're, they're right within the context that they're speaking to, you know, and like there is room for that within the context they're speaking to. And I think the only time that I... And I don't, I don't really can think of like a specific example, but that I've ever kind of like soft pedaled back something that a guest has said was when they seem to be getting prescriptive and saying, you have to do it this way, or this is the only way, or like, like James didn't say like, it's always wrong to think about the other continent over there. But if it had gone that direction of like, you're wasting your time and that's bad writing, it would have been like, uh, so, you know, there's many ways of writing in our, you know, many of our listeners have great ways of thinking about this and i think that that's the only time that i would push back and kind of start to kind of massage the converse not not pick a fight but massage the conversation yeah. in their direction because i mean i think we all know the the sort of fundamental truth of writing advice is that like no single piece of writing advice works for every single person and that gets more true the more prescriptive that advice is so if someone tells you like to world build this, you know, a decent world, you have to do it this particular way. You are going to read at least five books on every subject that you do. And then you are going to pick these three things to make sure you include in your world. And like, no, that's automatically, we know this is probably not going to work for 97% of people. You um, cannot write fantasy unless you read this <laughs> syllabus first. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Do you do you have a monarchy, dragons, and <laughs> nope? Then you can't do it. Do, do you have um, a conlang that you invented yourself? Yes, do exactly. you have three of them? Do you have like lore? I need to know the lore. But yeah, if if, if anything got that prescriptive, I'd be starting to kind of like, okay, that's where you know we we bring it back into this is your experience and what did you discover and and that it's personal, not prescriptive. And along the lines of our guests not being assholes, I feel like the the few times we've needed to do something a, a soft redirection like that. They go, yeah, they're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, yeah, this is this is the way I do it. And it's not necessarily the way everyone has to do it. I feel like our guests tend to notice when we're when we're steering like that and, and become less prescriptive when we gently call it to attention, which, again, I don't think it happens very often. No. Yeah. No. Our vetting process is basically, are you cool? Yes or no? And they circle yes. And... We, I mean, there's some other things. Like, if, if their books have women breasting boobily down the stairs, I'm going to be like, mm. We don't ask them on the show. I mean, like, no, that's what I'm saying. Like that's that's part of the vetting process. Like, but yeah, it's like basically, no assholes. <laughs> like we have an asshole light world. We also built. want to have an we asshole, try to be very light, asshole light, podcast. light podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that that does tie into like you know people people have asked like how do you choose who's going to be on the show and a lot of it is do we know you're going to be cool and do you, 
do we think you write cool stuff? And, you know, that's... Which is and not is... to say that if we haven't invited you on yet, it doesn't mean you're, you're cool. Yeah. It doesn't mean yeah, you no. don't click those boxes of or yes. If, you know. if, if we haven't had your favorite author on yet. That they don't. A lot goes into it. Like some of it's scheduling. There's some people we would love to have on who've even said they want to come on, but we just can't find the right timing. So like there's a lot. There's... Believe it or not, not everyone likes coming on podcasts and yeah. talking. To Which people. is valid. That's valid. So, you know, that's some the thing. Some of them, we've, you know, live in certainly... Australia or something, so they're and waking up yeah. and we're going to sleep. and <laughs> Just getting the timing is can be difficult. So, yeah, that's just another little window into the behind the scenes of the podcast for anyone wondering. it's We are trying to get as many cool people on as we can, but we only record two a month, and timing is hard. Schedules are hard. But we are trying to get as many cool people on yes. as possible. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to run out of cool people. So yeah, that's we're definitely thing. not. No, I feel like I feel like every every time we talk about like, let's look at our list of people that we'd like to have come on. We we just end up like adding more people adding to the list twelve to it. Yeah, like yeah. To I'm like, oh, this list isn't getting any shorter. And some of that's it is cool. there's I mean there's a list of cool people we'd love to have that none of us know how to get in touch with. So therefore, true. Therefore, true. unless they reach out to us, which happens, which does happen, mm-hmm. yeah. And if you're out there and you write cool stuff and you want to reach out to us, we'll probably be nice. But we won't be mean. <laughs> like again, we're we're not here to pick fights with people. <laughs> that's just not what no. we do. No, that's not fun. I don't I don't need my blood pressure high while no. I'm recording this. This I, is I am a relaxing already on medication. So therefore <laughs> <laughs> Therefore I'm And I'm on anti anxiety meds, so like I don't I don't need to be getting the shakes while I'm recording. This is a relaxing Precisely. time for me. Yes. This is where we have fun. As, as we hope that it is for our listeners, too. We hope that we haven't raised your blood pressure too much. <laughs> Except for the math. I mean, the, the math. It's fair. Like, yeah. yeah. It's fair. That's yeah. not math our is... fault, though. No, that's math. That's, fault. We're just telling it's... the truth. Math, math is the only asshole that we've invited on this show. <laughs> yeah, valid. Valid. I think we have one more question. Should we hit we it? do. Yes, I think we should. So from Dragonra. My question is, what to do if you have a building block of sorts, you need to world build, you have motivation to do, something you know you can build on, but you just can't. Like art block, but world building edition. This is a fun question because it's it's the fear of the empty page that hits all writers at some point. But it doesn't just have to be drafting that that happens to. Sometimes it can be the world building. The thing I do when I when I need to be immersing myself in something is I will find a book or a movie, or a TV show that just has the thing. And maybe it's stuff I'm going to use, maybe it's stuff I'm not going to use, but it immerses me in whatever it is I need to be thinking about, and that will usually start to grease the wheels and get them moving a little bit. Um, even if it's not, you know, a one-to-one uh, equivalence of, of the thing I'm watching and the thing I might be building, if it's close enough, um, like watching Stage Beauty when I'm trying to work on my Shakespearean theater project the time period is off by you know a hundred years but it's a theatrical world it's close enough it sort of gets me in the right mental space to start working on the building so something that has has the vibes and just go and kind of yeah, bathe, yeah, yeah, yeah. bathe in the vibes a little bit and yeah roll around in it in terms of like you know getting getting the building block as it were I know like one of the things that's happened to me with that is if 
I mean, a, a, as you said, it is the fear of the blank page. And I think finding some sort of like world building structure, like a form or even that, that like you can vibe with and then filling out the questions that the form is asking you yeah. is a good way to at least interrogate what it is you're trying to do. And I mean, I am notorious for like, I will look at a form and be like, these are all the wrong questions. And then <laughs> like so many like character forms, and all that, I'm just like, this is irrelevant. This is irrelevant. I do not need to know. these. <laughs> and, but then that, alone can then be something of a spur of like recognizing these are the wrong mm-hmm. questions and then mm-hmm. i start going so what are the right questions and then build a form that suits my needs and from there then start to fill out the things of the world so i think i think that is a strategy that can probably that can probably work pretty well is that when you are afraid of just the blank page and just can't simply can't it's might be because you're thinking what is the structure i'm putting this into and if you find something that imposes a structure that can take some of that pressure off one thing i would maybe ask too is where are you starting and why and if you are starting with world building but it's just not coming maybe starting somewhere else and if if you're writing you know maybe Maybe you start with a couple characters and they're having a conversation and they have something that they need to talk about. Maybe they're in love. Maybe they hate each other. I don't know. But you've got a couple characters and you're starting to develop them and understand them better. And and you just kind of put them in a jar and shake them up and see what they do. Um, maybe you act them out, like Cass was saying. Maybe you walk around your house acting out the scene of them talking to each other. And then you start to notice where they are and what they're touching and what's happening in the world around them and what are they wearing and if if they're if they're imbibing a beverage what is it and then you're like well where did it come from and then you start to kind of like pull these these threads outward that you don't i know that some of us build the sandbox and we have to have the sandbox before we play in it but you don't have to do it that way and if that's the particular blank page that's tripping you up turn the page do something else and then start to see the ways that what you were doing was actually doing the world building without you really realizing that you were doing it. And then you've got these pieces and you can start to fill in the blanks, right? So you kind of like, you've got some feeling about the vibes, you know, kind of what you want this to feel like, look like, whatever. Maybe you just know there are potatoes and that's all you've got is that they've got potatoes. And you're like, okay, so what am I going to have to do in order to have this world where my characters were having a knockdown, drag out fight while eating hash browns? The hash browns are where I'm starting. Okay, what, what do I have to know to get there? And maybe or that is cultivating useless. their pasta trees. <laughs> yes, exactly. Where zoodles have been outlawed for <laughs> millennia. <laughs> And, potato and just... people and the pasta people fight, and then, <laughs> and then they become they join together and become the gnocchi people. They do, <laughs> and and there was much rejoicing. Delicious, happy ever after. But I, I mean, to, to to then build on that, what what Rowena just said, I think the other aspect is what your world building can look like can be a lot of different things. Like building that sandbox first doesn't have to be 
a role-playing game textbook that you know somebody else can make sense of it can be a scene of two characters talking it can be a diary or journal entry it can be written down equivalent of three ferrets in a trench coat <laughs> so that <laughs> like it doesn't have to make sense to anybody but you in that initial stage and then you can make it make sense later when yeah. you're when you're doing further work but like I, I mean i guess the big question is what's what is the block that keeps that is the simply can't for you and then find some way to bypass around that by by doing it if doing a silly trick <laughs> trick trick yourself trick yourself is what we're yeah. saying and i bet part of the block is often fear and fear of getting it wrong and that's another thing where in your world building as you are building you can make choices that you then unmake you you don't have to get it right on the first try it's your world no one's gonna see this you know grounding work except you so just try something and try to write to that something to that choice and if it's not working that's you're gonna figure that out and then it's probably gonna steer you into okay this is what i actually need to be thinking about this is what i actually need to build i think just just dive in try try anything lose the fear of getting it wrong because there's no wrong at, at this point you're you're just you're tossing things in to see what sticks yeah give yourself permission to suck and you know yeah. if you have if you have like a trusted friend who like you feel comfortable with just like spitball with them and like say so, like what if and then your friends like but how would that work and then you're like well maybe like this and that can remove some of the pressure of having to come up with the whole thing by yourself too so if you're someone who's good at the whole collaboration thing um I feel like sometimes we act like world building is this thing that we're like under a blanket fort and like <laughs> secretly creating our world Bible or whatever. And it's like, no, it can be collaborative. I think, you know, we had, we had a great conversation about that recently, about collaborative world building and you can be, you can do that too. I was going to say also, it doesn't have to be like you wrote your world Bible. Like it, it doesn't have to look like that. Like you can be that completist, but it needs to be the world building needs to be the thing that you need, not what somebody else needs, if that makes sense, at least in the first draft. And I would say one one more tip on that sort of collaborative world building. Join our discord and talk to people there because they have so many conversations. I can't keep up with them, but they do this. They spitball with each other all the time. They'll be like, I've hit this problem. I've hit this block. Who's got ideas? Help me out. Um and people answer because we have a very lively forum. So join our Discord and and spitball there. Yay. Well, thank you listeners who sent in questions. This was yes. fun. This was fun. Yeah. Actually, Stacey has one more question that we can that is a quick question because okay. I don't think we actually have an That's answer. True. Yes. Which is <laughs> Are you considering writing novels set in the world of the MNG? And by extension, what is the name of the world? And the world doesn't have a name. <laughs> no, we've actually talked about this before. Yeah. Like, it's the MNG world, is, and that's about it's sort as of much it. as we. we I kind of want to call it Wiffum because WFM, like, <laughs> Wiffum. Wiffum. I, I always kind of struggle with world names in general. Like, yeah. Because. People like to have them, though. People like, like to have them, but I get too Watsonian about them, and like. Would the people on this world call it that? No, they wouldn't. And well, and then like each little I mean, Middle Earth, 
each corner is going to have its own word, even if they all have the same term for it, which they probably wouldn't all have the same term. It would at least be that term in a different language, right? Right. Yeah. And so there's like a weird like translation effect happening there. But yeah, I think the term would be different. So we don't. And as, and as for are we considering writing novels set in the world of the MNG? Well, we've got the anthology. Yeah. Which will exist yep. next year. Beyond that, I don't know, because it's it's such a constantly evolving thing that, I don't know, I feel like committing to a novel in it would be a little challenging, because we do we do retcon the world sometimes. We've, we've made mm-hmm. changes and different choices to the world at, at different points. Yeah. Uh, that's the, the glory and the beauty of building it live on air. <laughs> and also, I, I think, like, this... The anthology, when it comes to, will have created new things to it as well, because because mm-hmm. you know some of the stories that have been written for the anthology just make make really fun choices. And oh my god, even putting the world bible together, I, I ran into some things that it was like, oh, these two points clearly contradict each other, <laughs> or this thing can't actually exist everywhere in this world, so we're gonna have to tone it down. Yeah. But that's once again, that's just we're building live on air, so it's ever evolving, ever changing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, in some ways, it is a lovely experiment in proving that you can have fun world building and, like, not write a novel with it. That doesn't have to be the only end goal for your world building. You can do other stuff. You can do nothing with your world building if you want to and just build fun worlds because it's fun. You're allowed. Yeah. We won't stop oh my you. God. I want to build, a, like, an RPG module for it. <laughs> That'd be fun. That would be fun. Be fun. I'm not going to do that. I don't have time to do that, but I kind of want to. <laughs> More to the point, you want it to exist without I, you Yeah, that's to... better. Yeah. <laughs> I want to play a game set in my world. I don't actually want to <laughs> do that work. So, yeah. I think that's about... We hit everything, didn't we? We, did. we hit everything we and... Delightful. Going to have uh, exciting news about the anthology probably pretty soon from when this comes out that you'll hear more about the stories that are going to be in it because it's going to be coming out yeah. in 2024. And when this comes out, 2024 is going to be pretty soon. Around the corner. So there we go. Ah, why would you say that? It's terrifying. <laughs> Sorry. Actually, no, I'm sick of this year. I'm ready this year has to be been over. <laughs> I would really like to kick this year to the curb. So I'm actually extremely ready for it to be 2024. All right. Then we'll raise a glass to that. Excellent. Yes. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.